While she is a familiar face from leading roles in television and film, today's guest has a stage career spanning more than 25 years, ranging from Brian Friel's Aristocrats and John Patrick Shanley's Psychopathia Sexualis for Manhattan Theatre Club, to playing Queen Gertrude in Hamlet for the Public Theatre in Central Park, to her Broadway appearances in Jackie in American Life, Old Acquaintance, and the current revival of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm delighted to meet Margaret Cullen. My great pleasure, Howard. Thanks for having me. Arcadia. With any Tom Stoppard play, people immediately start talking about it's difficult, it's intellectual, I don't get it. Um, what is your response to hearing that? Well, you know, we're not going to get the audiences that couldn't get into Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, but that's okay because it's a different um, appetite. You need to sit forward, as Tom explained in the first three days of rehearsal. You need to sit forward and lean forward. So, yeah, it's full of ideas. Um, he's a genius. He's a genius and he likes to show off. So what a wonderful place for him to be, but in the theater. So, so when you started rehearsals, was – the focus on first understanding the actual intellectual content of the show or did you go right to emotional content? The first couple of days of rehearsal was our great pleasure. The American cast and our wonderful director, David Laveau, was in a rehearsal hall. We were all gathered in the rehearsal hall with the with the um, stage management staff and Tom Stoppard because the Brits were delayed because of visa problems for two days. So we had Tom in the room answering all the questions we could possibly ask, um, listening to his notes because the play is, as you know, is 15 years old. So, And there have been many productions of it. And he wrote it. And so he could tell you about the new Komen steam pump and he could tell you about chaos theory and he could tell you why he set uh, the moderns versus the uh, 1800s people. Um, and that's just it. That's just touching on it. So he spoke to us for five hours. Wow! In a row, we took a break for lunch, and then he talked some more. And then we came back the next day, and he talked for five more hours. So it was everything we could ask, and everything that he wanted to share in terms of, um, you know, character development. Why he asked for this line. Uh, what he loves about the play. You know, I mean, emotional development, absolutely, but also the ideas that are in the play and how he incorporated them and why he incorporated them. So what I mean, what a privilege. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when I think about performing in this play because in a way, it's like two plays sharing the same stage. You don't interact really with the people in the modern half no, of the don't. play. So what is that like where you're you're in one play and they're in another play and you've really got your cast and, and then there's this other cast. Well, to be really honest, we had a, a luxury of a long rehearsal period and then a long preview period. But when we got into the theater, I felt really under-rehearsed because um, while we had five weeks, how often we got to Lady Croom, my scenes, in the room, in the rehearsal hall with all the the things that we could bring to the party, you know, all the, you know, the, the set or the mocked up set and the props and the mocked up costumes. I felt like as though I had had half the time. Hmm. Because I, and I in fact did have half the time. I, I was called on fewer amount of days for rehearsal and I got to do the scenes, you know, half as many, as often as I would be if I were in the whole play. Because he had a whole other cast with Billy and Raul and Leah and, uh, you know, and Grace to rehearse. And then we were all – so I, I was um, – I felt really eager to get a bunch of run-throughs under my belt. And I was really happy to get into the theater um, because I knew then, then I would have the opportunity for the repetitions that I really craved. So did David actually, for a period of time, just rehearse – the period scenes and the modern scenes and you really weren't seeing each other or how quickly did it move to, to integrating the back and forth? We read the play around the table maybe three times and then when the Brits came, of course, they got to hear Tom talk for a bunch of days too. So, you know, fortunately, after the third day of Tom talking, he's, we remember that we are a bunch of actors. <laughs> so we'd really like to get up and do so. It's our turn to talk and to think and to feel and for you to look at us. So fortunately, everybody appreciated that. So... 
after the first week, hmm. we were on separate calls. You know, hmm. they were called because, as you just said, we don't we don't see each other. And then the one day that when we started to run the whole show in the rehearsal studio, then we did see each other. But then you're off in the scenes that you're not in, you know, desperately rehearsing on your own in another part of the forest, you know, in the bathroom, in the hall with your other actors. So you're not really sitting and watching them. You get a feeling of, you know, camaraderie when the show comes back together. But while we were creating the parts, we were separate and you know, I didn't, I, you know, it was a high five on the way in and out, you know. Well, that's it. it. It's almost as if, you know, I imagine now that you're into your run, you see each other before the curtain, but then when it's not your scenes, you're always hanging out with the people you're on stage that's with. Right. And as you say, you just, you trade off that's back right. and forth. And then there's, there's a bit of mingling right. right in the play of the scenes happening simultaneously. And then you take a curtain call together. That's right. So I see Billy Crudup at the curtain call. <laughs> and uh, I pass Raul on the stairs and we, you know, yell at each other one set of lines racing around the stage to sort of symbolize time crashing into time, which is one of the wonderful things you can do in the theater is have two time period. If you can time travel in the theater. You know, mm. you can you can afford that. So the the moderns can meet the 1800s people. I want to be careful not to give away too much because I personally so love the intricacy of the play. But one of the things it does is sometimes very subtly reveals events that are going to happen later on past the specific action that's been played in in your portion, whereas the modern portion is looking back and trying to figure out what did happen. Does the foreshadowing of events beyond the play in the future, because it, it really deals with about a three-year span yeah. in the period part – does that come into play at all the, about what's going to happen to the young girl? Oh, yeah. Well, of course the moderns know it because the they've, they've researched it. Right. it. Um, and we are completely unaware of what's going to happen because we're, you know, living it. So it doesn't really come into play. But Thomasina, the Thomasina character is so intellectually curious. You know, she's a math genius and so is her tutor, uh, Bell Pauly plays Thomasina and my uh, Tom Riley plays uh, Septimus and they're geniuses in their own rights and so these kinds of ideas are absolutely where they choose to live this is stimulated to him I mean he's hired to to keep her mentally stimulated and educated so whatever she can imagine while she's being tutored in algebra does foreshadow the future. She does She does sort of see not her own personal future, obviously, but perhaps what, um, you know, what will come to pass in terms of math, what people will come to understand, whether, you know, the temperature of the earth, you know, why are we here? Those kinds of extraordinary questions that theater's always been a part of answering. Hmm. And do you have any sense or have you heard it all from audience members about how they respond to the play? Do you have people at the stage door who want to ask you questions? Well, that's, you know, the thing with theater is that you get a feeling of their response immediately. You know, the silence in the audience, because it, it does, as I'm sure every guest you have says, they're the other character. They're the missing character. So when you get into the theater, Tom expects the audience to lean forward and to try. And our obligation as artists in this particular piece is to do what they say, like act on the line, move it on the line. There's not a lot of pondering. There's not a lot of resting in the uh, in the moment because you want to stay way ahead of the audience. Mm. And that's intellectually stimulating for the audience because they have to try. So that is part of this particular play. It's very interesting that you say stay ahead of the audience because so often people talk about not wanting to lose the audience. Right. And so what you're saying is is the effort is to keep it going at a pace that forces them right to pay attention well they you know, even they, though you they, might lose some you along might the lose way some you know some it's not for everybody the but the uh you know it's sort of like how many levels of alienation can we lob at the people at the ethel barrymore theater it's a british <laughs> accent it's two different time periods it's um uh math theories oh good sign me up let me come but what makes this production really available is that it's really what happens to people on the stage. Who's who's falling in love with who? Who is excited by this idea? Who's the first to reach this idea and and uh, back it up and publish an idea, you know, back uh, with the corroborating literature and history? So 
And it's the excitement those human beings feel on stage about those ideas that lets the audience in. So if we lose um, people um, because they didn't get that particular word or they don't understand that expression or um, they're hung up because of the British accent, we will eventually get them in the sweep of the whole piece. Hmm. And just like uh, 15 years ago, the script sold out of the lobby of Lincoln Center. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's flying off the shelves at the drama bookshop. So it's a very good one to go back and say, now, what was that? And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do the play because I have a short attention span. Uh, so once I got Lady Croom, uh, you know, in a realm of playability for me and the people I have to please in the project, living with these ideas till June, I mean, that's mentally stimulating. That's very good work for my life. Hmm. Because we are in the dressing rooms for half of the play and or on the stairs racing up and down five flights. Um and we're hearing these uh, – we're hearing the, you know, the, the play come over the squawk box. And then you realize, what is she talking about? What is, what is this th- – the actions of bodies in heat? What is this theory she's talking about? And then Byron Jennings and I will go, no, it's this, it's this idea. Remember when she says this? And then we, again, even with two months of this play in our lives, piece together her argument to try to understand it. Hmm. So it's very um, – you know, mentally stimulating. It's really, and it the it's worth investigation. It is. It's you know, you use the phrase "bodies in heat," which in many ways is the more enticing way of referring to the second law of thermodynamics. But that's what's so interesting about this play is it operates on both levels simultaneously. Yeah, is that you know, oh. it is in to some and and me among them one of his most human and and moving plays yeah. because it has all of those ideas but they're simultaneously fed into by the actual human foundation of the people who are having those ideas of relationship you know it's why i go to the theater i mean it's very it's fine to see a lecture but it's not why i go to the theater so i go to see something happening for the first time between Two or more people on stage um, and certainly to be involved in that. And we deliver that like gangbusters. Well, since we're talking about the present day and the past in Arcadia, let us now go to the past oh dear. for you, Margaret. But we should also say oh. that Lady Croom is is sort of – the character that I play is sort of the sex of the <laughs> – 1800s, because there's a very big preoccupation with who is having sex and with whom in the play. And I play this woman who in the past is having more than her – well, I guess not more. <laughs> I guess what she feels is just a, the as right As much amount. as she deserves. Exactly, and she can get. So it's um, – that's great fun to be in the corset and the, and the wig on a raked stage. I guess she's only getting out of the corset for, in, the, in the scenes we're not seeing. Exactly, exactly. Um and that that is that is great fun because while this is a very intelligent woman that hasn't had the benefit of an education, so she runs this Sidley Park. She runs the 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 estate that the um, play takes place on. But once her duties are fulfilled, where is she? You know, where does that right. curious mind go? And it's with you know London society and the the society of the countryside. But it's also with you know. Her sexual appetite because romance and intrigue and the the romantic mind is very much – she's very, very curious about that. Mm. So, you know, idle hands and Lady Croom, watch out. <laughs> well, stepping on my segue, which I thought was so clever, it, but you grew up – you were born in Brooklyn. You grew up out on Long Island. Yeah. Your first brush with theater was in kindergarten Good in a God. play called The Little Old Lady Who Loved Noise. Yes, that's right. Um, were you the uh, aforementioned the title, title character. character? Indeed, I was. So was it literally you did this? I mean, kindergarten shows were probably 10 or 15 minutes long and done in the school. Oh, it was much you know. longer than that. Really? Oh, yeah. They were serious in Baldwin. <laughs> Public school system. Well, you know, I mean, it's the glory of teachers. It's the glory of teachers that are dedicated and have the budgets passed so that they can spend time with kids after school and they can teach them to learn, not just to pass tests. Hmm. So, and part of that was including the arts in it. So I did get part of the little old lady and um, I uh, loved it. I, I actually remember being in a, some sort of 
go-kart. I think my mother probably supplied the go-kart. And I was pedaling on stage. And it's a proper theater in a proper gymnasium with, a, you know, curtains and everything and with a backstage. And we got to be in the school at night. Wow. Even if it was, was – so maybe that was kindergarten. So maybe they didn't let us – so I think Little Old Lady Who Loved Noise was like maybe first grade. So we were allowed to be in the school at night. Hmm. And that was very thrilling. Well, some of these early credits uh, from this part of your career <laughs> are, are lost to time. Thank God. I don't know if you were doing shows every – I mean, certainly I didn't go to a school where you were doing shows – in elementary school, so that's very you know you do a concert, you yeah. sing songs, did a lot. but but you were actually dealing with plays. Every that, class you know, did a play. Every wow. every grade did a, a, a play, and it was not you know insurmountable. You hmm. you it was just easily part of the curriculum. So yeah. well, you say it was part. I of didn't the curriculum. get the lead every time. Okay. though. I don't recall. Well, they probably can't do that at that age. So console yourself Thank you. that it was probably they probably had to more spread than it enough. around. I had to learn some math myself. <laughs> um, did you immediately start thinking, I love this, I want to do this? Or since you say it was part of the curriculum, was it simply something you did just as you were doing other classes? Well, there were lots of kids who refused and would not. And, you know, of course, I mean, yeah. Hmm. So they did other things. They, you use theater as an education tool. So there were other aspects of of uh, doing plays that if they, for the kids who were absolutely not going to – I guess there was auditioning involved. I really don't remember. But you weren't – it was an effort that was expected everybody in the classroom was to participate in, in painting the scenery or or seating the the audience. You, hmm. you participated. Um, and through that, you learned. Rather than sitting with a book and spitting back information, you learned with a hands-on experience about organ- organization and art and all the other stuff. I just knew I really liked pretending to be somebody else. I really, and, really loved it. And were your folks taking you into the city to see theater? That Not young? at that age. No. no. God, no. But there okay. was the, this beautiful thing. You know, there was television. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, the 430 movie and there were all those brilliant ladies in their, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and uh, Catherine Hepburn were on the 430 movie. Yeah, the problem with the 430 movie is it was only a 90-minute time slot and the movies were hacked to pieces in order to make them fit in yes, some cases. that would be a, a filmographer's problem with it, but that was not my problem with Got it. Got it. Having said, I have a short attention span, so. Well, not obsessing with your school productions, but I really have to ask about, in junior high, you were directed in a production of A Funny Thing Happened by the Way Scott to the Forum Rudin. by Scott Rudin. The noted producer. Yes. Now I don't have what year of junior high this was, but but I I have to ask. At age fourteen, let's say, or maybe a little earlier, thirteen. Um, what kind of a director was Scott Rudin? He created the student theater. It didn't exist. Hmm. He organized it and created it, and 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 uh, secured the money for for the production and got the permission from the school. And he created it. So there was there was in addition to the uh, theater run by the drama department, which is an after school club. He created the student theater. Huh. So you know he's completely capable and you know grown up at junior high. It was like dealing with your fifty year old father. He was <laughs> you know except for exactly how it wouldn't be like dealing with your fifty year old father since it's Scott Rudin. Um, he was friendly and had a really keen sense of how the show should go and was very encouraging. He was it was one it was great. Fascinating. And you kind of thought that it it had an immediate wonderful fit of how things should go. Hmm. So now jumping forward I when think you, I was Tintinabula. I knew you were one of the courtesans. I was. Ah. I, I remember working with my mother on the audition for it. So you had your little symbols I had and a, <laughs> Well no, I didn't know I was going to be Tintinabula. Uh-huh. I auditioned. Okay. So I worked but with my mother <laughs> on the on the choosing the music and doing the choreography and we worked out a routine at home and then I did it again on the small student theater stage. Hmm. It was great. When you got out of high school, did you go straight to Hofstra? There was a yes, I did. There was a short time with New York Stage and Film, the Summer School of the Arts apprenticeship with uh, Juilliard hmm. uh, Acting Company up in Sarasota Springs. I had auditioned and gotten into that. And that was the first time I had any um, instruction mm-hmm. um, in voice and movement. And, and uh, I mean, I had been taking dance lessons since I was 13. And, you know, gym class, which is a disaster. <laughs> for so many of us, for so many different reasons. Yes. Just let me dance. Leave me alone. Um, so that was there. And um, 
I, I read, yeah, so that was a, about a month or two of the summer. It was also the first time I was away from home. So it was, hmm. it was thrilling on a lot of levels. Hmm. But I also worked with community theaters while I was growing up in Baldwin. Um, the Unitarian Church had a very active theater, uh, obviously um, amateur. Um, but my dear friend at the time, her mother, Mrs. Nerzer, um, was in – this theater company and they were doing a production of Desdemona and I was either 13 or 14. I'm sorry. They were doing a production of Desdemona or of Othello? Well, (laughs) he was in it too, but it was called Desdemona. (laughs) They were doing a production of Othello and they asked me to play Desdemona and my girlfriend's mother was um, Amelia. Hmm. So that was a trip and a half. We uh, went on a family vacation and I memorized the role and came back and they were very sweet. They, you know, thought I put them all to shame by being off book for the first rehearsal, which is the first and last time that it's ever happened. <laughs> so that was a huge highlight. I mean, that was a huge highlight to to do that that summer with all these grownups. And, you know, to feel like I could cut the mustard playing, you know, Desdemona in the production of Othello, which is clearly mistitled, the part the, part <laughs> the play should be, Desdemona. <laughs> so that, yeah. So then I went right to Hofstra. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And to study theater, you sure. made the decision what at else? that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was too nervous to go into the city and just start looking for work. I mean, I, I really wanted to be trained. I wanted to have some skills. So Hofstra was a wonderful opportunity for me. But you didn't finish. No. So why why the decision? You started getting work. Well, they cast me right away at Hofstra. Um, Dr. Mason, this wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher that just died and we're having a memorial service for him in uh, at the John Cranford Adams Playhouse at Hofstra hmm. and he was so influential and so difficult and passionate and and uh, really clear eye uh, formed a lot of our opinions a lot a huge group of people that I went to college with like Phil Rosenthal from Everybody Loves Raymond and Rob Wiener who runs the Chinati Foundation in um, Marfa, Texas and uh Liz Larson, who frequently appears on Broadway. Uh, who else? Celia Burke, who's just started her singing career. This, um, I can't think of everybody at the moment. Sorry. And then there, so he formulated an enormous sort of theater IQ. We really were, he cast me immediately and I worked like crazy as often as I could mm-hmm. on the main stage and on the small stage. So as long as I was acting, and going to class, I was very happy. And then one day, I was doing Clearing in the Woods, the Arthur Lorenz play. It's one woman who goes into the woods in the middle of the night, sort of having a midlife crisis and meets earlier versions of herself, plus her previous uh, loves, to try to figure out. And this wonderful actor. I always get his name wrong, which is just completely horrible, but I always call him Mark Jordan, and then his niece comes up to me and says, you always get his name wrong. (laughs) And I promise to do better. He came to see the play and left his agent's card. He sent his agent's card back to my dressing room. So Hmm. here I am, you know, 18 or 19, because I'm a May birthday, so it was a couple years into college, and I went to meet the agents, and they said, Go get a headshot, which, of course, we thought was completely inappropriate. What do you mean I have to spend money to get a headshot? My father, the the police officer, is like, they should pay for it. (laughs) So we went and got me a headshot. And uh, the first thing I auditioned for, um, I did an audition for them. And then they sent me out for The Edge of Night. Hmm. And I got that opposite Kim Hunter. Wow. (laughs) So did you immediately – drop out of school when you got there? Oh, no, I told Kim Hunter to, to a- wait. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, look, I've got gym credits. Well, some people balance or you do a, some, you know, soap operas. Sometimes you're on for a while. and I think I went in on the summer mm-hmm. and, and it started. So it took me out of the semester. It, t- it took me out of the upcoming semester and mm-hmm. it lasted six months. And so then I went back to school. But having gone to college just to learn acting skills, I mean, not really in search of that degree. Um. It was fine. Hmm. Yeah. And so I, I would continue to return before I moved out of, you know, into the city for good and out of Long Island. I would continue to return to Hofstra for picking up credits. Hmm. Interesting. Now, there's obviously a great opportunity when you're cast 
in a soap opera, you know, at the beginning of your career, when did you actually get to start doing theater professionally? Well, uh, in those days, unlike with Mr. You know Franco now, if you were on a soap opera, it was a kiss of death to get a theater audition because they thought that you were – and you know, justifiably so in some sort of twisted way. They thought that if that's all you could do was um, be pretty in front of a camera, why would you have skills that translated to the stage? Well, except for the fact that they should have given me a shot. So you're saying kiss of death in that casting directors would not think of you for stage work because you were on a soap. Yeah. Okay. You were categorized and lumped with that. So, you know, the the whole idea that an actor gets to act and that I was never going to starve to be an actor ever. So if money and a, a living wasn't attached to it, I wasn't going to do it. There must be something I could do to make a living. That you know, the 13 people living in one room sharing a can of tuna fish, I was never going to be that girl because it was, I just knew that I wanted a life that was a little richer than that, that, had, mm. that didn't have quite so much community and starvation involved. So I did get The Edge of Night and then after that as the world turns. But I didn't um, – I stayed with the, what the agents were sending me out on, mm-hmm. which was – more soap operas since it worked so well the first time. Send her out hmm. on another one. And it's a good market for somebody who's 19. You know, right. to, you know, it's a pretty good market and you hit a huge audience. There are people coming to see me in Arcadia who recognize me as Margot Montgomery from As the World Turns. At a certain point, did you say, I've got to start doing theater? Did you have to stand up to your agents and say – Oh, at a certain Please. point, I said I, I, I wanted to play more roles. I wanted to have more – freedom Mm -hmm. financially and artistically. So uh, I left a really extraordinary group of actors on As the World Turns and uh, yes, said uh, by that time I switched agents and said I wanted to go out for uh, everything. Hmm. So nighttime television opened up and um, Ensemble Studio Theater gave me an audition. I see that you did Marathon 84. Was that really the first good theater gig? Definitely was the first. There were, I think that there were also readings, at, readings, staged readings. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was it. Hmm. All I found was that it was the marathon, which of course was a series of one acts. Right. So what was your one act debut? Do you remember it? House was directed by Howie Deutsch. Hmm. I think that's what it was. I think that's what it was. So, and, and that was cast by theater uh, Billy Hopkins, who went on to cast – Tons of stuff. Well, in those days, it was Billy Hopkins and Risa Brayman right. together were, right. were doing – they so were once, top casting people yeah. for the theater. And it was a good place to be seen because I was you know, young and beautiful and had – you know, and was also really good on stage. So that was you – know, opened up more doors eventually. But I remember you know, going in for the auditions and EST has got the stupid poles that block – oh, and, you know, and, I, and I go into this hovel downstairs and it's over in East Nowhere and I auditioned for this – play that I didn't think was, you know, the material was not very good. Certainly it was, I was saying, better material on the daytime soap opera frequently and much more often and being paid better for it and reaching an enormous audience. So I remember doing the audition and coming out on the screen, out on the street and then screaming up to God like, this? I can't, can I have this? Hmm. And then I got home and I did, in fact, have this. But (laughs) the marathon, again, Short rehearsal period, short run. It's not that it was a major commitment. The next credit that that I turned up was that you went up to Rochester and did a show at Jiva Theater. It actually opened their new theater. Yeah. So as you say, you didn't want to live the life of a starving artist, but going off to Rochester, New York at that point – had an appeal for you in terms of I didn't want to be the star yeah I didn't want to be the starving artist in the way that I literally described when right. I was at Hofstra people were talking about getting a room in the in, uh, to do summer stock like a bunch of them right. in one room sharing literally sharing canned food I had why would I do that right. why would anybody do that so and I wasn't a starving artist because I had years of soap opera money of television money and commercials I did about right. 20 commercials so there was no part of starving in my life I had a very healthy bank account and I had learned to really uh, become a professional actor on those television shows right. but you were willing to go out and do ha- a regional show to. really happy 
Planifiers. But then the next thing I found was Manhattan Theater Club, Aristocrats, as the next play. Now, maybe I've missed something, but that was about four years later. If we're only talking about theater, that's probably how it went. Yeah. Now, Aristocrats, certainly in comparison to doing a show in Rochester or doing a short play at EST, that was a production that I remember got a lot of attention. It was, I believe, the U.S. debut of that Brian Friel play, a wonderful play. And the role that you played in it is certainly, you know, a terrific showcase. So what what was um, really getting that full experience? And Friel, as I recall, was around for that. He was. I have had the really great fortune of, you know, uh, John Guare, uh, Tom Stoppard, Brian Friel. I mean, for God's sake, John Patrick Shanley. I mean, I really have working relationships with all of those uh, brilliant writers, and I'm really, really thrilled. They're all different gentlemen, and their hearts are so extraordinary, and their talent is luminous. So I've had nothing but the best luck. I'm sure I'm, you know, those are the living ones. What happened? Was that I got better and that there was a body of film work. So I was in Three Men and a Baby and they, and Manhattan Theater Club said, we'd like you to think of Margaret in this role to Robin Lefebvre, who was our British director. And he looked at the film and went, yes, please. <laughs> yes. And so I was offered that. And that was, um, what was her name? I can't remember her name. Her name was Alice. 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 And she was um, the second oldest daughter of this uh, uh, family that used to be aristocratic and was no longer. And she had a drinking problem. And I think she was middle-aged and she was barren. So like three weeks into – and I was married to the delicious Johnny Panko who was in love with my sister. And Haviland Morris was in that and we all became such really great friends and Haviland played the Chloe character in Arcadia the first the time original around, production, which yeah. is the only reason I went to see such highfalutin material. <laughs> and so I found out three weeks into rehearsal that I was pregnant with my son. So as my you know belly grew, I you – know, <laughs> it was hysterical. They kept buying me bigger and bigger dresses and so I did that part till I was six months pregnant. And then at a certain point, you couldn't talk about being barren. (laughs) Um, You know, apparently we went right past that point. And then I just went, I'm exhausted. I have to go. Or you frustrated the costume designer who had to keep disguising it. But Manhattan Theater Club, in terms of your stage work in those years, they kept offering you opportunities. You know, I've had two homes in New York from Manhattan Theater Club and also the Roundabout. A couple of years later, you succeeded Deborah Headwall in Sight Unseen. Yes, I did. It was downtown at that theater. Yeah. Yeah, and I replaced. I went in after Deborah left. And that was a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous part. Well, at that point, you had not had the experience, I gather, of replacing someone. All of the roles you'd done, whether in school or professionally, you were the person. What was the experience of stepping into that role and how much opportunity did you have to – make it your own and how much of it was hitting the marks that were there before? It was scary, but I related to the role very strongly. I think it's a really well-constructed play. I was rehearsed excellently by um, – well, you'll tell me when I did all the other things. You got all <laughs> I was very well rehearsed by um, our stage management and the director came in for a few hours one day. And Michael that was, Bloom dropped was, by. <laughs> was extraordinarily helpful. And – you know, Mr. Arkin joined us and then John Christopher Jones came in to play my husband. And he'd been in Aristocrats, That's right? right. Yeah. So, so it was it was heaven. Hmm. It was easy in heaven. It was very, very comfortable and the work was really uh, interesting. So I guess it was a little nerve-wracking, but it became very easy. It became uh, – I mean, I, I, I absolutely was not encouraged to copy anything that uh, Deborah did. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have no idea what what she did. But you didn't have the full re- – you said it was a stage manager. You didn't yeah. have the full rehearsal period. No, you period. just jump in. Yeah. You, you, it really was yeah. a jump in. So I think if I had I, – I, I wasn't nervous because I related to the material so well. It was easy to learn back in those days. If the part was easy to learn, I knew it was a good fit. Now I'm doing it long enough so that there are other reasons why parts are not so easy to learn. Hmm. But um, repetition and hard work takes over – now. Um, and I loved that theater. 
I love that. I love this that space down there. That physical space was pretty gorgeous, and um, we just had a really good time right off the bat. So nobody asked me mm. to imitate anything or the timing of anybody or the gestures, but I had the good sense to know that someone already figured out the part, right? You know, so I think I'd seen the understudy do it. Mm-hmm. And and so that that also and she was wonderful, but that also gave me a lot of permission to make it my own, which is why yeah. they they invited me to do it. So. Interesting. Jumping ahead again a few years, <laughs> Manhattan Theater Club still Psychopathia Sexualis yeah. by John Patrick Shanley. Yeah. Um, I have heard parts of that play. I have not seen the whole play. Um, it seems like. It was a different style of material than you'd worked on before because it's it's John being you know a bit outrageous yeah. and and not explicit but certainly dealing with with relationships. What was uh, doing that show like? Well, we rehearsed it in Seattle, which was oh. really weird. Well, Dan Sullivan directed, so he was still running Seattle Rep at the point, at which point right? Which is the reason we went up there, mm-hmm. and then we opened it in the, the city center space. You know, frankly, the part that bugged me the most was that it was a supporting role. Hmm. Yeah. Park overall. Right? Mm-hmm. She played the leading lady and I was her supportive friend. And I think I was at that phase of my career where I was uh, very happy to be back on stage. It had been a while. And I was um, – uh, I was very – what I was attracted to was that that woman was very supportive of marriage. She was – that character was calming her nervous ingenue friend down so that she could face the rigors of being married. And while it wasn't always happy, it was definitely a great way to go through life. So even though this Andrew McCarthy had this strange fixation of having to be near his father's socks in order to climax, there are worse things that could happen. So it was <laughs> funny and thematically I kind of liked it and it fit into my life at the time. And uh, I'm again from that Andrew McCarthy, and I have remained really good friends from that. Um, and I, I got it. I like. I, th- I thought the whole. I thought that marriage could use a boost because um, you know the idea that people staying together and working together and to spend a lifetime together, even though it's not always. It's even though it's hard work, was worth it. And those were the glorious reasons I decided to do that. Hmm. Well, you made but the, the naughtiness of the material was sexy and fun. It was fun to hmm. shock the. It was fun to shock them. You made the comment that being in the supporting role wasn't so easy, but fascinating that later that year, you made your Broadway debut in the title role of a new play, playing Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Um, But – and this is only three years after she passed away that you did it. Not a documentary version of Jackie Kennedy's life, to say the least. How did you find your way into Gip Hoppy's version of Jacqueline Bouvier, Kennedy, Onassis? That had been done out of town in a cabaret setting with these glorious actors from Boston. So like Tommy Dira, again, my my way in was with the love and support of my castmates. You know, I I think I'm (laughs) – I love actors. I find them to be very supportive and very – Nurturing and protective and understanding that, that, that it's a frail thing that we start out with. You know, confidence is a delicate thing. And the creative uh, spirit, you know, the willing to try and, and show what you do to the audience seems like, well, of course. Why would that be something that is frail? But it can – you know, I only realized that it could be frail when I would be around actors or directors that aren't supportive, that are sort of talent suckers. And then, then I – I had to develop another whole skill set. Hmm. I was really lucky that that didn't happen for a long time. And certainly with Jackie, uh, when I met with the creative team and auditioned for that, I just got a um, an idea on how uh, – my idea of how to play her uh, coincided with their outline of what she should look like. And there's so much film and uh, just so many pictures of her. It was a joy to research. But the early moments, the early days, Gip Hoppy knew what he wanted. So, you know, I, I'm glad that I look like a Procter & Gamble television uh, ingenue. I'm very happy that I look like somebody that you could put on nighttime television that people would believe I was a, uh, you know, a young woman going through all the various things I've gone through. So, I'm, you know, you're, you come in with what you look like. And that's made me employable. 
and I'm, you know, I had, I maintain it or destroy it depending on how I'm feeling. But I'm, you know, I had nothing to do with that. That's my beautiful parents. So that helps get me in the door. Mm-hmm. And then as they say, you know, um, all those auditions I didn't get, all those years of jobs I didn't get are not in that list. Because um, I walked in the door and I didn't look hmm. or sound or do what they had in mind. My interpretation was my interpretation, but it wasn't what they wanted. So Jackie, I think the brown hair, the tall slimness, the wide features um, helped. Hmm. And then um, I found her voice easy to find and I got that it was a ladylike 1950s persona that she was bringing forth, which I certainly saw in my aunts and my mom in my home and on television. So then Gip had done it in Boston with the brilliant Tommy Dera. And um, he cast it with incredible actors here. Uh, again, we all learned from each other and uh, Gip knew what worked. He mm-hmm. said, I don't need you to emotionally re- uh, you know, investigate that. I know it works. We don't have that much time. It's a lot. There are a lot of elements. Just do it this way. Well, you know, kiss my spreading middle-aged butt. Just do it this way. But I did in the <laughs> rehearsals and you found that it was working. You found I've, you found that it worked and made the piece work. Because if you remember, it's puppets, proscenium well, it's puppets. Incredibly and, stylized. Yeah. yeah. And, and people playing multi- 12 roles. You're the only person who played a single role in From like birth all the way through. So, mm. you know, I had a, so, and it was, um, the it could only take place in the theater that it was a shrinking proscenium. It was uh, through her whole life. It was uh, – I mean we covered everything from the White House to um, the Hamptons to uh, her ho- horse farm in uh, New Jersey. We covered everything hmm. um, to the yacht with Onassis. And, and so that certainly wasn't an actor studio um, delve into that kind of work. You had to figure out where the work was and right. Gip knew exactly where to put the work. I asked earlier about hearing from the audience. When you are playing a figure like Jackie Kennedy, who had become such a New York fixture in a later part of her life, um, as I said, it was shortly after she passed away. Did you encounter people who knew her at any point? Were they coming to see it? Did they have an opinion about the show and about how you were playing her? Well, you know, the Kennedys, everybody knows the Kennedy. It's like that I boat. don't know any Kennedys. Oh, come on. My father insists that I uh, that we are related to the Kennedys. I have a whole stream of relatives that are last name is the Kennedys. Um and it's yeah and they Honey Fitz is the relative that we had in common. So I didn't need to look far to find <laughs> um but I got a lovely letter from her social secretary. Hmm. She came to see it and she wrote this, Letitia, I think her name was. She wrote this beautiful letter to me on stunning stationery with this perfect handwriting. I was very moved. Hmm. Very moved. And I had heard that actually she wasn't, she had heard about it in uh, the cabaret act, in the cabaret form of it in uh Boston, in the Massachusetts area rather. And she'd sent some friends to see it. And she was reportedly, they asked her about her. They asked her about it, not with me playing it, but asked her about it. And the answer was that um, she was kind of tickled. Unofficially, she was kind of tickled. Hmm. Because it was very sympathetic to the, to what the woman had to go through. I mean, right. you know, I just hmm. admired her enormously, her education, her poise, her making the best out of her life that she can, you know, she's fluent in French and can read it as well. And she helped him uh, win the campaign and she knew to look the other way and she raised beautiful children and she took care of herself. She, I just have enormous respect for her. Hmm. So, and so the, the, the audience responded was your question. Well, it, no, it was really more about, I asked about the audience before, okay. but but about people who, who knew yeah. the Kennedys. But let me ask you now. Um Making your Broadway debut, you had been a working actress for close to 20 years. Yeah. This is your first time on Broadway. Is it a different experience? Does it feel different than the other work you've done? Well, as you you know, Manhattan Theater Club is very – has been – was very open to me Um, and my talents and what I had to bring to the party. Um, And so they cast me a lot, which was 
irreplaceable, you know, to have a home like that. So the shift to the Belasco playing the leading part was was extraordinary, and I was thrilled to death and felt quite ready for it. Very much, very <laughs> much. Let's go, come on. And and it, I, as I recall, what we were oh the the physical demands of doing the part, the offstage changes from wigs all the way down to shoes were so well choreographed. And even if the audience wasn't with you a particular night, getting those changes done offstage in the booth and getting back on to make your curtain was um, was thrilling. And thank God it was, you know, that many years ago, because I don't know if I'd be able to do it now. <laughs> I, felt, I felt absolutely ready, cocky as anything. And if I, I felt like if it wasn't well received, it would not be because I wasn't doing uh, what I felt great about and ready to do. It would be because they didn't like the piece or um, – but I was very proud of New York. They were absolutely ready to laugh at um, American royalty, hmm. completely ready to you know, laugh you know, in a satire like that. And I, I was thrilled. It was a glorious six months. Hmm. I've been going very chronologically. I want to make sure that I get a whole bunch of things in. So I want to ask, you've done three shows that I see at Williamstown. And I'm wondering about the experience up there, the shows being On the Razzle, which was Stoppard's adaptation of the play upon which Hello, Dolly! is based on as well. You did Sweet Bird of Youth and just uh, just this past – I guess this past summer uh, was Six Degrees of Separation. Right. Um, working up at Williamstown, it's a little bit more of a compressed process in terms of, of getting it done and the runs are fairly short. Yeah. Um, does that call on on different muscles as an actor? Because by the time you know, so many people talk about you kind of settle into a run. Well, there's no time to settle at Williamstown. No. By the time you know, in what would only be your first couple of weeks of previews in a show here in New York is the you're end of your done. run yeah. there. Yeah. So, so what what's that like to have such a short period in which to actually play the part and indeed particularly in the case of um, Six Degrees and Sweet Bird of Youth, complex parts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all of them had their different challenges. The the great David Jones, who passed, um, directed me in the Lifetime Movies of the Week as well as ep- some episodic television shows and directed me in both of uh, On the Razzle and Sweet Bird, as well as um, productions here in town of at Irish Rep. And he was my key into feeling comfortable because mm. we brought up great things in each other. He was very comfortable with me as an actress and wanted uh, – and knew what I could do, instinctively knew what I could do and wanted me to have the experience of playing. Um. So it was hard but it was condensed. Very, very long hours and then you know away from home. So all of the um, – those opportunities came at a time when I was willing to leave my family. Um, and that whole camp thing, like my sons are supposed to like suddenly go to camp, that was not going to happen. Hmm. They were always much more fascinated with my husband um, over every summer. So if I left for the summer, um, then I was removed from my family except for when they would come to see it, which is really hard. Hmm. So it was good that the roles were challenging because uh, – and demanded my full attention because it was it was hard to be away from them. I've never asked this question before, but when you have less time, a little less time to rehearse and certainly a short run, does the experience of film and television where rehearsal is rare, does that actually help you in in a process of going to a place like Williamstown because you, you have to just make choices and go with them? Yeah. Well, I, that's exactly what – I mean, so I have been blessed. I have been blessed so often I, I don't even have a – my list would be longer than yours for all the areas I have been blessed. But I think the fastness of television, because we would do 60 pages a day on As the World Turns and other nighttime TV shows you would do t- – you know, you would get the pages last minute sometimes and, and you would have to make uh, quick decisions and enhance the character. So, yes – Hmm. So, the, so you build up confidence in your own ability to make choices hmm. and to uh, outline a characteristic. I would do Sweet Bird again anywhere, anytime. I mean, it's, she's just a – it's a glorious uh, character. It's wonderful to explore. Hmm. Um, and she – you know, the things that she gets to say, it's my only – well, at Actor Studio, I worked in uh, with uh, Tennessee Williams. I did a bunch of projects there that were Williams. That was my first time in front of an audience. So – with playing uh, the princess, and I loved it. 
Mm-hmm. I loved being that vulnerable. I loved having those words, Tennessee Williams words. Three more plays. Defiance, John Patrick Shanley's follow-up to Doubt. He has said he whether it'll ultimately be a trilogy, we're still waiting to see, but that it was about how people function within institutions and that Doubt was about the church, Defiance is about the military. The role of a military wife in that show, you simultaneously dealing with how much you love someone and how much you hate the situation he's sort of put you into. Um, I thought it overlapped with Jackie kind of nicely. Really? Well, yeah. I think that both women chose men that were in a line of work that – they chose men that were in a line of work that would make their lives difficult. Hmm. The the woman who married the the major, she didn't, you know, the colonel, she didn't. She chose a, an army man. She cho- she chose him. She was it wasn't a forced marriage. She chose him. But what's interesting is you have to play someone who is ultimately devoted and angry, but in a play that is a very small slice of their life, hmm. and Stephen Lang is a formidable figure. Even though he's not a military guy, in person, he seems like somebody who's just walked out of the Marines. Yeah, well, he'll be so, flattered to hear you say that. <laughs> so I'm wondering, <laughs> would he be? Or? Yes. Well, sure. He play, he, he's made quite a career out of playing yeah. military fellows. How do you play love when within all of the, the – almost all the material you have to play on stage, you don't see the underpinnings of where that came from. I think that's all you do see is the underpinnings of it. It's really? She's in – she makes a home. She's a, Her son is out of the picture. Um, it's her idea of love. It's what hmm. – uh, what is love? What is what – it's not hearts and Valentine's, it's the daily commitment to somebody else um, and to making their life together work. And so right from the beginning, you see with her that Sunday is special, that he has to – it's Sunday. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. She just, you know, come home. He won't go to church with her or they, he he went to church or he's standing outside giving – yeah, they go to church and they come home and it's not about the military that day that where the play starts. So that's their time together. And I always felt that you could feel the love between the two of them because – they put each other first. In their time together, they put each other first. Hmm. And they were fiercely loyal to each other till he cracks, till he is, you know, he's got that fatal flaw. And she lets it known how she feels about it. Hmm. You know, she's, there's no two ways about it. So she's the man behind the woman. She was the steel magnolia. I thought she, uh, it, was a, it was wonderful to play it. And, you know, how do you give Stephen a hard time? <laughs> you just stand there and do it. <laughs> Old acquaintance. Yeah. Which was just a treat. Oh, thanks. Is playing comedy as hard as they say? Yes. Uh, yes, it is. It uh, Yes. Um, especially since that's a slightly dated piece. I mean, mm-hmm. Psychopathy of Sexuality was, was, was funny and and On the Razzle was funny and, and it depends on how well it's written mm-hmm. and if you can find the rhythms – uh, that make it sail. So then you really need a, a strong director. And Michael Wilson was a strong director. But I think Harriet Harris and I had two different ways of going about things. And I don't know that we ever found our footing together. Um, I just loved that career woman. I loved that uh, – and, and that she had this surrogate mother relationship with the young girl and that she had a young lover. I mean so those were really and – then, and then the female friendship between the two of them was um, – you know, the mature female friendship between the two of them was antagonistic. Um, and I, I don't know that it was funny between the two of them. I don't know that it was funny. I don't hmm. know that the, I don't know that Harriet and I ever found a way to be funny together all the way through that play. But she was certainly hilarious and she's delicious and I completely admire her. And I think, and I uh, loved doing my section with my, you know, to do that, to show that that woman lived apart from society. She was for the time that she was living in to dig out an opportunity for her to be an artist cost her, hmm. cost her in her relationships, cost her in her romances. You know, she was going to be alone. Hmm. She's going to be alone. And hmm. I think that was pretty brave of her to – and she and she did love. I mean she loved the sort of surrogate daughter to give her up enough and she loved her friend enough to get over that big 
betrayal between them because there's a value in friendship. Mm. There's enormous value in friendship. Early in this conversation, this Lady Croom oh. thing is comedy. This Croom, this mm-hmm. this Croom broad, she's this is this is timing and comedy and stuff. This is yeah. So this is um, this is good hard work to get the jokes out there. Early in this conversation, we talked about your early starring role in Desdemona. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank God you got that right. A couple of years ago, I, I learned. I, I clearly, <laughs> you know, our research was very faulty. Um, playing Gertrude in Hamlet in Central Park, has there been any Shakespeare along the way, say, since college? None. So that's pretty daunting. And the challenge of doing it outside even adds to it. Yeah. Um, what was it like taking on the the queen of, of literature's biggest role, most famous young man, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Well, you know, tortured young men, I had a, you know, I have to, I have a couple of those at home. So that was easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, at that time that I did it a couple of summers ago and working in Central Park as a dream, my agent, Gary Gersh, said, I just really think you should have that experience. And I'm glad I listened to him. And Oscar Eustace um, was the first time he had directed in many years. So when we met, uh, he was, you know, made me feel comfortable and uh, important to the production and and, uh, that I absolutely had um, what was needed. And I had had two days I couldn't work because I was committed on something else. And he said, no, fine, we'll let you out of rehearsal for that. And – I, I find that Gertrude is a little underwritten trying to figure out, you know, where she's coming from, what she wants, where she's going. I find her a little underwritten. Um, I love the language. Again, it, when you work on a play that you know works, like Hamlet works, um, even though they don't call the play Gertrude. And you can fetch about it being underwritten. You know it plays. Yes, sir. So rise to the occasion. You know, I know the princess in the Tennessee Williams play works. I know it works. I know that the colonel in Defiance, even though I created it, I know that part works. Anyone who Mm -hmm. picks it up should know that part works. You know, so that's the, I didn't know it going in. So I wanted to Right, and it's a new play, so there's the opportunity to tweak. You're not tweaking Gertrude. No, but others do. I mean, other, other, other directors and producers will cut Mm -hmm. and take lines from this one and that one, but we didn't. We didn't. Well, well, it was cut already. It was already, you know, because it's, you know, it's almost as long as Arcadia, for God's sake. <laughs> it's much longer than Arcadia. And um, I, Michael Stuhlberg was delicious. He was he was wonderful. I was far too young to be his mother. But I, you know, that, w- that was fine. And I, I loved it. I loved, um, I loved it. I would love to do more. I loved getting my mind and my mouth around Shakespeare. I loved the verse. I loved, I loved that she was a queen. Hmm. I didn't love so much that. Uh, Andre Brower and I, who played um, Claudius, we didn't we didn't have those uh, accoutrements that make you the audience know that they are king and queen. They rule. They shouldn't be questioned. Mm-hmm. It was sort of an Oscar Eustace public theater utilitarian king and queen, which makes it difficult to order people around and demand things. Which I think is really important when your character is called the queen. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not going to be picking up popcorn. Off the floor, so those were those were interesting struggles. And working in the park is heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the best background in the world. It was heaven, and everybody came there, saw it for free, and they really wanted to be there. And we only had one day that it was rained out. I loved it. Well, and in the meantime, you are now into Arcadia for a couple more months, yeah. and fascinating to know that when we're not watching you on stage, you're backstage still figuring out the the intricacies i am and the 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 joy of arcadia as well as doing shakespeare is that these uh, ideas stay in your head but the beauty of the language and the complication of the thought elevates my own personal thinking patterns which is really wonderful you Hmm. sort of you know that's exactly it your mind gets sharper when you become used to Phrasing things in a way that absolutely means what you say and incorporates um, higher ideals. So it's a it's a joy. Well, and it has been a joy speaking with you today, Margaret Coleman. Thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. 
My great pleasure. What a lot of work you did. (laughs) (laughs) Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at John Kilgore Sound and Recording in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.